0: Episode ninety eight of the Pilot the Pilot Podcast takes off now.
1: Hey, my name is Dion Mitten. I fly seaplanes for a living.
0: Aviation, Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to episode 98 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Today, I'm sitting down and talking with Dion Mitten. Dion is currently a seaplane pilot. He lives in South Africa and the States. He's pretty much all over the place. And he takes some of the best aviation pictures you could ever see. Dion's a great story and one that I really think you guys will all enjoy and just hear about his tech life and how he kind of transitioned and just went into aviation, has gone full in and is a full seaplane pilot with dreams of flying some big International Cargo. Avia nation if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Once we hit 500 reviews, I'm going to be giving away five shirts. So you don't want to miss out for that. Just go leave a review, let me know what you think, and then you will be automatically entered to win one of those shirts. If you enjoy the podcast too, you can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash pilot Special shout out to John Schofield for being the Patreon of the week. If you'd like to be the Patreon of the week, check out patreon.com slash PiothePilot. Avonation, I don't want to keep you any longer. So, any further ado? Here's Dion Mitten. Dion, what is going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. Hey, Justin, how's it going? Going really well, man. All the way from sunny and warm South Africa,
1: Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, in the middle of summer while you guys are having winter. Thanks it's, for uh, thanks for having me.
0: It's terrible. I think it's like five <laughs> degrees outside in Chicago right now, so I'm freezing my butt off.
1: It is plus 25 Celsius. Oh, so. man.
0: Living the good yeah. life, man. Living the good life.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, cool. Well, uh, I'm, I'm really happy that you're on the podcast, man. I know that we've talked about this in the past and tried to get it scheduled, and we finally got a date, finally got a time to talk, and I'm, I'm really excited.
1: Me too. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for taking the time. I know you have a busy schedule. Of course, you do some real flying for a, for a living, and I'm just here... Uh, uh, you know, being a snowbird at this time. And so, but thank you very, very much for scheduling. I, l- I look forward to the, yeah, to the no conversation. no problem, man.
0: Uh, So I want to go ahead and get started. I want to know more about you, know more about your aviation story. So let's go back to the very beginning. What was the original interest and why did you want to become a pilot?
1: Uh, Thanks for the question. It's, uh, I guess, like with so many, uh, well, first of all, my family, there's no aviation in my family, nobody that flies, nobody that's even closely, maybe two or three generations back, you know, there were some interesting stories. But uh, I think for me, it started when I was uh, visiting the airport, the local airport, commercial airport, where my dad used to take business trips. And at the time, um, I must have been five or six years old, so I was just, you know, first, second grade. Um, and at the time, the airports had, there were no fences. So I think the the lasting memory, and I can remember that very clearly, was you're literally 50 yards, 100 yards away from, you know, uh, at the time, Boeing 707 or, you know, the commercial, whatever they flew at the time. So you pr- pretty much were able to, the spectator line was able to be right on the ramp almost, and you could get a real up-close look and uh, feel for all the activity. And then, of course, the mix of, commercial jet aviation plus general aviation and it just left a huge impression and i remember going home and drawing pencil sketches and would take it to my teacher and you know i was just all over this because these are the things that i've i've seen up to now but then of course the first time i saw them up close so that 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 uh, left an impression i guess
0: it's crazy to talk about the days where there's no fences you could go up to a 707 and just be so close Mm -hmm. to it without even flying on it or even in the States, I'm sure, is similar in South Africa and other countries. You didn't need a ticket. You didn't need anything to get through security to go see an airplane. You could just go walk on up and go meet your the person that's coming to to meet up with you or visit you, and you could leave. And obviously, times that's have changed. So it's crazy, I think, for some of the younger generation to hear that you could do that. And it might make them a little bit jealous because we had—it was pretty good. I mean, you could kind of uh, just go right
1: up to a plane and go see what it's doing, what's going on. Absolutely. You know, aviation was such a accessible industry and, and friendly and inviting place to be, whereas we know now it's not like that anymore. And I know in the U.S., you know, we are very privileged to, to have <clears throat> lots of organizations that that represent general aviation and where aviation starts. You know, everybody starts somewhere. Um, and for the most part, if you're not associated, affiliated with the military, it's in private life. And and uh, we, we're very fortunate to have these organizations fight for us and fight for the continuation of general aviation. But yeah, it's never going to be the same, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Was it similar in South Africa, was it after 9-11, where all that started changing or did it change before then?
1: No, I'm pretty sure um, I was uh, uh, I'm pretty sure it was the same. you know, the whole world shifted gears. Uh, interesting is you mentioned nine eleven. I was actually in Manhattan on nine eleven oh, wow. that's a whole other story. You know I'm one of the people that were there, witnessed it, I witnessed it, uh, was stuck in the city for a week after and and that story. But it had changed the world, and I think uh, everybody, you know, looked to the U.S. and looked to the West and see how they responded and and copied um, and followed suit in many ways, but yeah, that's where we are today. Yeah, no, for sure, that is where we are today, and that's crazy that you
0: were in Manhattan when it all happened. Were you there on Mm -hmm. any kind of flying related mission, or were you just there for
1: for business? No, I was on a business trip, and I was um, in Midtown. You know, people familiar with the city will know the geography. I was in Midtown, and I had a clear view of downtown, and I was just in my business hotel, getting ready to leave uh, for Newark, uh, so I was going to head downtown through the tunnel and go to the airport, and of course that never happened. Um, so um, I I turn on the t- uh, Short story as I turn on the TV as the first uh, event took place, and then of course I was very curious and wanted to figure out what's going on. So I stuck my head outside, went to the rooftop of a fifty-story hotel, and I was able to to actually have an eye. I uh, sight direct sight of what is going on, so it was terrible, uh, terrible I day. I can't
0: even imagine. Like you said, that's a story for itself. That's a podcast that you yep. could talk about for itself. Right. I don't want to get too deep into that. I mean, I would love to, to right. spend an hour talking about that because my dad had a similar experience where he was actually on right. the runway in LaGuardia and saw it all go down. So, but it's yeah. just, um, it's just, yeah. We'll, we'll move on from there and talk to yep. more uh, Happier and more about Dion and flying. So you mentioned that you kept drawing planes, you're around planes, and that's kind of like it was an, engulfing your life, engulfing what you wanted to do. What was your next step So from being that kid drawing airplanes to trying to figure out how to become a pilot in South Africa.
1: Yeah. So I grew up um, here and I spent my, um, my school and education here in this country. And so the that evolved into, you know, we, we as a family would always be outside in nature and safari lifestyle was just part of the upbringing. So I'm very familiar and very uh, at ease in nature. And that's where we would spend our vacation time. And I think so the combination of once or twice visits to the airport and then looking at nature out there. And I, I, I became very curious about what, it, you know, what the views would be like from above, literally treetops. So when we would hike a hill or climb a mountain, that would be my most favorite thing to do as a kid when growing up is to uh, when I grew up was to, you know, hike to the mountaintop. Um, so that, you know, I kind of parked the idea and it'd always be fascinated with aviation and the science of it all. And so then I fast forward I went um, f- finished my postgrad and I qualified, became qualified in computer science and physics and math and applied math. And so very much a scientific um, post-grad education and it wasn't until um those years that i finally figured out well hey i gotta make a plan and put you know some action into this and so i ended up um uh, starting my first job and I, uh, I actually worked for I think about seven years saving up and then finally to go enroll myself in a local flight school and, and go get the PPL out of the way.
0: Yeah. So when you were in school, when you were uh, graduating, when you were even working for those seven years, was the whole goal <laughs> to always either become a pilot or venture into the aviation world or was there a time where you were kind of like, nah, it's not for me, I'm just going to do business, I'm just going to go my own route? <sighs>
1: Um, I would definitely say it was never the primary focus. You, so, so my education was to you know be equipped to obviously go start a career and be curious about the world and solve complicated problems because that's what you do with you know the, all of the <laughs> the machine stuff and the the technology that all of a sudden became available to to the world. It was the first generation IBM PC. Those were the times, you know, and people were solving complex math problems. So, the flying thing did, it kind of started emerging again as a hobby as an interest. Because because the university, the campus where I went to school, had a had a flying club um, uh, very close by, you know, less than five miles away. So, you would always see GA aircraft overhead, and I started making friends, and they were affiliated with the flying club. So, slowly but surely, I got introduced back into that, and I th- think at some point, I just figured, well, what the hell, you know, let me just go do this. Let me go try it. Let me go for that flight and see if I actually like it. See, I was never worried that I would be capable but i wanted to see whether it's really something that would be as cool and as fun as what i had imagined it to be all of these years was this all in south africa yeah what was uh, what is the general
0: aviation kind of world like in south africa i know i've talked to people from russia i've talked to people from europe never from south africa but they always tell me how good we have it in the united states and how much easier it is to to become a pilot what's it what's it like in south africa
1: Yes, it is true. The U.S. has the means, has the access, has the space, has the community to, to, to really support and maintain and even grow general aviation. The community is way more limited in size, uh, population-wise, um, and I think it's a function of the economy. Um, aviation is, as everywhere in the world, the cost of aviation is prohibitive in many regions, just because of that Uh, because of the cost of energy um, and the cost of the maintenance operation so if you're in a part of the world where there's no local manufacturing or production of aircraft and or maintenance as is for the most part all the ga outside of the us you know so you're dealing with imports um, imported equipment imported maintenance imported everything so it's essentially cost prohibitive and therefore uh, the communities are small. They're just as passionate. And the, the interesting thing that happens uh, as the U.S., the interesting ha- thing that happens in a, in a, in a struggling uh, where there's less discretionary income, um, it, it drives innovation. And, you know, like all the sayings go. And so even in the pilot aviation community, People have to be very, very ingenious about it and innovative about making their hobby happen. So you'll find that they'll organize differently. Uh, for example, the flying club, the entity of a flying club, is a way popular. It's pretty much the only way that you can afford to participate in general aviation in this country. Whereas you, you go to the US and we don't have really the flying club is not really a thing because guess what? The individual ownership, uh, aircraft ownership is very achievable. And so that's the way you do it. Um, So the short answer, is very, very limited in size, um, but way more ingenious in terms of what people do, how they organize themselves and and how they pretty much get it done. And it takes a serious amount of dedication to still do. And you'll find um, I visit some of the European countries frequently. And and I find the similar thing in um, the, the Scandinavian countries, which of course has got some other things going against them, for example, the climate and all of that. And But the same thing, the same passion of energy of a, of, of a very small community, but just over the top passionate and energetic about general aviation.
0: That's yeah. good that the passion's still there because the passion's the most oh. important part. It's like you said, it might not be as easy in the States, but if you have that passion and you have the will and the drive, you're going to find a way to get it done. And like you said, they have to find a way because when you have this passion to be in aviation, whether it be general aviation or become a, a commercial pilot, you're going to figure out how to get it done. You're going to figure out how you can achieve your goal and dream. So they see those setbacks more of a challenge of how they can do it rather than a deterrent and don't go after it.
1: Absolutely, and it's all about the community. You know that fosters a way stronger community uh, than other parts of the world where it's perhaps easier to achieve. And and so back again to my example, I had to save. I for sure did not have the means to to fund my own PPL. Uh, short of five to seven years of, of working and saving. So it gives you an example. Know we In the US, we say, well, aviation is for everybody and it's accessible to everybody and it's not expensive. And truly, it is not compared, you know, relative to the currency and the 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 income and discretionary income. Uh, the US is a very, very happy place. <laughs> in That's crazy to think because, I mean, yeah, inflation. you ask
0: anyone about aviation here and they're like, man, it's so expensive. And I always say how aviation has always been expensive, whether it's been in the 60s, 70s, 80s, like it's still been than top dollar to get your ratings. I mean, it might be a lot different money-wise now, but it was still expensive back in the day. But we in the states even have it better than most other countries, which is just crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What That's um true. so back to you, back to your story. You were you were working, you were uh getting into this community in South Africa and you were hey, I think I want to actually be a pilot and like you said you knew that you probably had the technical ability and the physical skills to do it, but you were here starting that journey. What was that journey like? What was it like having a full-time job with trying to become a pilot and save money and all the the challenges that come with uh, starting a PPL?
1: Yeah, with, you know, with hindsight, I would say, it was exciting. It was absolutely exciting. It was some one of the most fun activities that I've ever, uh, you know, uh, set out to do. And I think if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for my attitude of approaching it like that, I would probably have, uh, you know, not overcome all the obstacles that we all go through in throughout the training. Um, I just found it to be so much fun. I couldn't wait till the next lesson. And here's one thing that I've, that I maybe by luck, by pure luck, I just worked out like that because I had saved up. The, from the first, after the first lesson, and call it the introductory flight, I was I was sold. You know, I'm like, where do I sign? Let's get this. <laughs> Take <laughs> my money. I want this. Yeah. Take my money. I'll get this thing done. And so the instructor was like, whoa, 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 slow down. Well, it's not that easy. And you know, you know, talk me down from where I was. And but ultimately, it worked out like that. I was so motivated. I was so passionate. I completed the forty. You know, all the syllabus of the the training and the mandatory stuff and the check ride everything. I think I was in and out the door in 40 or 50 days and it was done. And, and it's just because I had, I had just not wanted to slow down once I started. And, and on some days I would, so fortunate the, the, the flying club, the, the local airport was probably 10 minutes from my place of work. So I would go for a lesson in the morning uh, before, or just around sunrise. And I would be back at the airport at you know, after work again. So I'd get two hours, three hours of flying per day, you know, per work day, and I would just continue and just go full out. So um, I knocked out the PPL pretty quickly, pretty, pretty easily Um, just, I think, because I I had removed all the obstacles prior, like the finances was never going to be an obstacle in my mind. I had cleared that out. So it was just up to me and my ability to learn, to learn effectively and to keep it fun. And, And I'm just, you know, by nature, I'm curious a curious person i'm kind of an experimenter and i think that's why i love the sciences so much so to me you know all of the all of the novelty of aviation and the gauges and the instruments and what makes it fly and all of that i mean it's just what let's (laughs) i could not i was like a sponge i could not stop it's like the magic uh, of
0: aviation caught you you know just kind of like this like how does this all work how does this all come together and just happen so yeah that's awesome
1: Of course. So you start through your initial air work and this, that, and the other thing. And then you get to solo. Yeah. Sign that off. And I just could not stop learning. I just wanted to become better because obviously, in the beginning, you suck at everything that you do, you know, but it was (laughs) so much fun. Just I wanted to be better and better and do it better and do it easier and, you know, just be, yeah. So it was a lot of fun. And so I knocked it out pretty quickly. And then I think short after that, I, then I was so hooked that, um, uh, again, back to the community, it was f- fairly healthy in terms of recreational flying, and so I was able to uh, to rent a, you know, a flying club airplane and go fly. Then, of course, as we all do, the first thing we want to do is take your friends and go show them everything that you see. So that went on for a while, and then I discovered some competitive flying uh, activity, which there's a um, – it's, it's big in Europe, um, the um, – Kind of, there's a little bit of it in the U.S., but not so much. Um, There's several disciplines of competitive flying uh, that involves um, skill tests such as cross-country navigation, uh, precision navigation, um, as it as it gets exercised through a cross-country long nav, um, uh, combined with spot landings. And combine um, in in different configurations, which pretty much takes you as a pilot from the exercising everything that the entire discipline of the pre-flight, the getting ready, uh, actually executing a cross country and be judged on very precise timing and obviously um, keeping to the route. And then gets ended off with spot landing competitions and under The configuration setups, like I mentioned, like a power approach, uh, no power approach uh, with flaps, with the aid of flaps, and then a no power without the the use of flaps. So those three, those were spot landing. So it's not a short field landing. It's just you get uh, rated, scored on the. um, uh, You can think of it like a carrier landing, so where your main gear touches the the line, and then you get. Penalized before and after the line kind of thing it's
0: kind of like at oshkosh like all right land on the green dot you know it's the green dot <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah.
1: <laughs> it's absolutely the green dot so prepared so you for was- oshkosh then right <laughs> yeah it's absolutely good preparation so i got you know very intrigued in that and the other thing about that whole test and it's uh it's known as in the in- industry as rally flying and rally whatever rally navigation rally flying you can google and find it um the thing about the navigation test is you, I think the rules are, they might have changed, but it's something like 15 minutes ahead of the fly, departure ETD, you get given the route, uh, the waypoints. You get given the waypoints, you have to map out, you have to basically map out, calculate your ETAs at each waypoint now, and you're flying at 1,000 AGL. So you have to very, very quickly do your wind correction, wind calculations, and figure out your ground speed such that you can maintain and, you know, be predictable in terms of your ETA at, uh, I think, 10 or 15 waypoints. And the whole route is going to be like an hour. So, so th- then the scoring is, again, on a second precision. So you'll get penalized for every second. You're either early or late at a specific waypoint. Those so you have be spot on. You have to be spot on. So, and and there's obviously you can cheat a little bit along the way, but you're not allowed to do a 360. So you can S turn a little bit. So it's all it's very carefully thought out to to present the pilot with quite a challenge in terms of navigation, flight planning, maintaining control of course, and flying head head out the window. Now, on top of this thing, on top of you know flying 500 to 1,000 AGL, making waypoints to the second. What really complicates, and then I'll end this story, is you get given a set of aerial photos of of from of the route. Uh, yeah, in a handful. You get like twenty photographs. Now, and so the 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 aim is to identify those uh, landmarks on along the track by means of aerial photos. So you're flying. Think of this: you're flying with a physical map uh, of a of sectional. Actually, we don't even fly with uh, sec- aviation charts. You fr- fly with a topo map that has. Uh, uh, one in 50,000 scale or something like that. That's really, really detailed. So you'll get, let's say, a fence line or a fence post, just a photo of a fence post, like nothing more, very zoomed in. So the pilot's challenge is to identify um, visually those landmarks and mark them on the map as you go. And that's the other part of the scoring. Here you are trying to make the waypoint, trying to not to drift off course and blah, blah, blah. And you're trying to look at the at the course and now the, the, the trick of that is, of course, the photos are on the track, on the ground track, if you can imagine. So you really have to be flying offset to the track, either to the right or to the left. If you're flying from the left, then you're going to be right off track, right? Because you, you're looking out the left window all the time. You're in a crabbing <laughs> configuration all the time, trying to spot this dam and the fence. in the. In, <laughs> it's crazy. So you're in an unco- um, uh, uncoordinated configuration below a thousand feet and trying to be on the second there's a lot going on
0: that's for sure yeah
1: gets interesting it's, yeah. it teaches you to fly by the seats of your pants and it it may sound you know awkward to some people but it really teaches you to not even look at the gauges you scan just the engine instruments every now and then but airspeed and all those other things just you you gauge you feel the airplane you get to feel how it's flying you get to f- get a feel for the airspeed a feel for the wind drift and all of that so it's uh, pretty much visual rules
0: yeah that's <laughs> good because it's hard to teach feel you know feels is something you get from experience feels not something yeah. you can learn on a book or through a youtube video feel is just solely you and your relationship with whatever plane you're flying. So feel is definitely, and i probably one of the more important tools that you can, you can come up with as an aviator to, to be the best, best and safest pilot. So sounds like you learned it in a very interesting way. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's still alive. You know, that's that that kind of uh, competitive stuff is still out there. It's not so prevalent in the U.S., and and I I do think there's a community that that uh, participates in that. But that got me straight from PPL to kind of stick and rudder flying and flying by the feel of it. And I think that was a very good introduction and 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 kind of got me learning and thinking about everything that's going on. And and obviously we we always learn. We never stop the learning process. So that was a lot of fun. We do have something kind
0: of similar. It's more in the 141 university world called flight teams. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, mm-hmm. but they have flight teams at most major universities that have airports or that have uh, flight schools. And they go compete in navigation. They go compete in pre-flight. They go compete in kind of like item drops where they have to, they have to drop some kind of object onto a dot or like where someone is staying. So it's kind of, it's not the same, but it's, it's a, they have spot landing, so they do similar stuff to that, but maybe not to the same extent that you guys had to do.
1: It's probably a selection of some of those things just in a different format, so I would encourage, you know, for everybody, anybody that listens and are think, either thinking or, you know, what are the, what am I doing with my PPL or my general aviation enthusiasm, go look around your local area and go find communities that do stuff like that because that's really, really, that kind of flying, and, and you know, if you add a little bit of competitiveness, it's not the aerobatics and precision and the single pilot Pilot competing to against it you're essentially competing against yourself that's what's going on and so the better you are at mastering the the, the muscle memory and the machine the learning of the the, the mechanical skills you know the the safer hopefully you become as a pilot the earlier you can recognize things the earlier you can correct things and and all of that so it's Absolutely, kind of yeah,
0: getting a community early on in your aviation career whether you're in school whether you're just at a, a flight school is, is huge i've mm. talked about it for mentors or just people to know people to push you to be a better pilot you know you could just see someone else at the airport every single day, maybe twice a day, maybe doing extra work. And you're like, man, I need to be right. more like him if I want to be a safe pilot. So it just kind of goes and you can build off each other and just become the best possible pilot you can be. Now, I wanted to bring up one thing about... Yeah, the
1: inter- what, the that- interesting thing about that is once I got introduced to that, of course, there are mentors and people that have done it you know, way longer than I. And so there's always in a community some some mentors or, or people more experienced that you can look up to. But the, the funny thing that happened to me besides all of this and trying to figure it out is... Back to the pattern work is because there was this, this part of the discipline that called for spot landings under these configurations, you know what my, my favorite thing became to do was when I would pull out the airplane and just go be in, play in the pattern, power of 180s, power of 180s. Like That would be my, the standard pattern that I would, not standard, but I mean, my typical pattern would be power of 180s. And I would just want to nail that line or whatever because remember now at the airport the, the markings on the runway stayed you know even if there's no markings, but in the states uh, you know when I went, went through the the FAA syllabus I'm like what do you mean we don't do power of one eighties like what for PPL I'm like come on that's only you know you only get to play with that in the commercial so I would encourage you know people that start out again get your instructor to teach you some really cool stuff that will test your skills and make you better at you're in the pattern. You know you don't need a lot you don't need a lot of time you can get 10 15 power of 180s in less than an hour so just go do it yeah you know, no that's fun. important i
0: mean that was a lot of fun in my commercial training and i like you said we don't do that in private or instrument it's not until commercial mm-hmm. we get tested on that and It's it's a great way to challenge yourself. Like you said, it's a great way to understand power management because you never know when you're going to lose that engine. There's definitely the opportunity that can happen and you might have that mindset that it's not going to happen to me or you just hear stories about that, but you're in an airplane. There's a good chance you could lose. Something could happen where you're forced to make a power off landing, whether it be in a field or whether it be on a runway or taxiway, whatever your option is. So to understand how an airplane maneuvers without any power and how flaps affect it and how every kind of just pitch and speed and all those configurations can help you land is just going to be super beneficial, especially
1: to a young private pilot you can never say enough good things about that and so conditions learning the the spe- specific airplane and how it performs and its lift drag and all that parasitic stuff and then also the conditions the surface winds you know we we'll, we'll go do that stuff on paper and then we'll go okay well i got my spot and this is more or less where i'm going to cut the power and i know i can make the threshold well <laughs> the next day it's 20 knots blowing the wrong direction yeah. You're like what the <laughs> heck <just> love buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: that's when you get humbled so, really quick that's really Yeah, funny. so
1: anyway i love i love doing that
0: yeah. kind of stuff i had a yeah. question about uh, what you're talking about earlier about how you're super motivated how you couldn't get enough of aviation how you just kept mm-hmm. going and going and wanted more and more and more yeah. did you ever run out of that motivation did you ever reach a point of burnout did you ever reach kind of like a man this is kind of like a drag or this is kind of um, just kind of a lot and if you didn't no. what was it that kept what did you do to, to not reach that
1: point No, never. Short answer to that, never. And even today, never. And so here's what I think is going on with me and it might, may not be the same for other people. I mean, um, I'm again, like I said, I'm very curious. I'm a curious person at heart and um, curious about the natural world around us, meaning nature, how things work, how people make machines, how they build machines, how they design, you know, from The nature—it's from nature out there—the very basics of our natural world, um, to sophisticated stuff like rocket science. All of that, everything in that spectrum in between, just totally fascinated by stuff, not by so much how it works, because you can go read a book. But I'm very curious about how the the human element of how people. Got to invent things, and what the reasons were why they had to invent, let's say, timekeeping devices. You know, or you think back about navigation and how people circumnavigated the world with the basic tools that they had at the time. You know, getting on ships off into the ocean. It just there's so much. So I'm just fascinated by the the natural world, and I think the flying because of the physics and the the technology piece. Now, I remember, again, I went to school for. Um, for high tech stuff, and and so I have that as a foundation, and I can kind of rely on that. And now in the later years, build on that, and I can go well. Oh, I can see how you know a synthetic vision will function. I can well, you know, I can see how I would build it, and why haven't they built it, and why is it taking them twenty years to build it? <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. So kind of, there's so much stuff that just intrigues me. And so in addition to the flying, but even back to the basics, like back to Bernoulli and you know the why wings why lift how and why lift is general all of that stuff it's just so no there you get you get times of burnout or when you're tired, of course that happens right um,
0: happens to everyone everyone's going to reach that point
1: yeah nobody's superhuman so you're going to, you're going to get that I think it's how you prepare yourself mentally to overcome the obstacles and 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 maybe with some foresight, try and imagine the what if scenarios. Like, what if I get to that point in my flight training? What will I do? What are? And, and I think just when I first became qualified to, you know, get in an airplane, I think then the, the this whole the thing that we we were so keen on acronyms for everything, right? So it's ADM right now, and who knows what it's going to be later on. But the the, the decision making process that a pilot person or a person operating a complex piece of equipment, machinery like an airplane. The decision-making process is, a lot of it is tactical, meaning the situation develops now and you need to know what to do. So your training is strategic in the sense that it prepares you to handle the tactical situation as and when it occurs, if, if and as and when it occurs. And I think approaching flight training with that same kind of mindset helped me or training myself to think about it like that it helped me um already put my plan b and plan c and plan d in place that if i hit an obstacle with like my instrument what am i going to do Da da da. so
0: yeah what um yeah i know i totally agree with you i think it's great to have that mindset of like all right don't be naive to the fact that it's going to happen because burnout does happen to pretty much everyone but have a plan of attack in place be like all right i'm stepping away for for Five for a week. I'm just going to go do fun things outside aviation, and then come back with a with a fresh mind and go back at it. So I definitely think it's important to have a plan B, like you said, C, D, E, whatever, all the letters of the alphabet. Yeah. You know, so
1: no. Listening to myself saying that, you could go, well, oh, that's really vague." Okay, I get it, but what specifically was that? And I say, if the question is, "What specifically did you do?" I would say, and this is true in life in general, go learn from others. I think I am keenly aware that I'm always. Learning something, and so when you're thinking of the problem of you're going to get burnout, well, go talk to other pilots because surely you're not going to be the first person experiencing this. Go ask around the flying club, ask you know, test your flying uh, community, and go find that person that will give you the knowledge and the experience and the wisdom, and then that you can then use and maybe adjust it sl- slightly and go well this sounds to me like a recipe that i could apply and i could maybe adopt in my process and it could be another fellow it could be a fellow student it could be a mentor it could be a cfi it could be another cfi not your own cfi you know the one thing that i found especially during my instrument was well how do i know if i'm if my progress is on track am i on track and i'd look at my cfi and he'd go well yeah you're doing great and so i'm like well no, but, but how do you, how do I know that? Is it just because you say that? And do, are you even, you know, truthful in your assessment? How do I know? I want to know if I'm better than the average of the class. And if you, you know, 141 is probably easier, but I did mine 91. Uh, and so, or what is it? 61, whatever. Yeah, 61. Um, 61. So I was the, you know, one-on-one with my CFI. I didn't sit in a classroom full of other students. I could never go to the other students because nobody was at the same level as me at the same time during things like my commercial and instrument. And so I think that's a challenge. And the way you get over that is, so like, how do you find a a benchmark that you can compare yourself against is go network with your pilot network. That would be my answer to that.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. I never really thought about that. It's hard to really judge how you're doing in your training because there's not much to base it off of. Other than maybe you listen to a podcast, someone says it took them 40 hours, but you're at like 80 hours and you still have your private pilot license. Now, when that happens, there's nothing wrong with that because there's so many different factors that come into you becoming a pilot or your training. And it doesn't mean you're a bad pilot by any means, but it's just it's always good to have that kind of benchmark of like, all right, he did this in 40, but the, this other person did it in 100. So if I'm somewhere in between or if I'm the lower side, then you feel confident about yourself, you know? So it, it's, it's good to have a kind of, some kind of benchmark that you can base your progress and training off of.
1: Yeah, and I'll qualify that. If you're at an aviation college, you know, you, you probably have it easy in that regard because you're in a classroom full of the other people the same that's doing exactly the same as you are but for the general guy out there or person uh, that's uh, 61 and just they have a full life and they're just just doing this on the side i think that's the challenging place and uh, because life happens you know there's so many variables and it's probably unlikely that you're going to find anybody else that has exactly your circumstances so you kind of have to model off of what you learn but i think the general thought there is go learn from others Wisdom, the others before you, go learn from their mistakes. Ask very specific questions like ask them what was the biggest mistake they made during their instrument training. And go get that answer and go get that from 10 people and then see, see if there's a theme and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, so, that's uh, what
0: aviation's all about. It's all about learning from other mis- others' mistakes, whether that be right. in their training, whether it be in a flight they had. Maybe they did something dumb and they want to teach you how to not do that or how to react better in a certain search- situation. So why not even bring it down a smaller level to what they did in their training? Learn what the mistakes they made in their training. Maybe they switched an instructor too quick. Maybe they should have switched an instructor quicker. So you never know what you can learn from someone and you have to ask those questions to get those answers.
1: No, and, and you know, if you're 61, there's really no guidance. It's you and your CFI. And so like the things you just mentioned, like should I switch? Um, is it me and the CFI? Is this dynamic working? Is it not working? There's just so many variables. And so to help you not waste time and money You have to go find as much information as you can. And that's what I would say uh, back to you. You're going to hit some obstacles, go find the information, the knowledge, and you can only find that in your community from people that have been there before you.
0: Exactly. And the only way you can build a community is by going to things and taking yourself out of your comfort zone, maybe, and going to talk to people. So it's definitely something that everyone should try to do. Yep. Yep.
1: Yep. Now, today, we were really fortunate. Social media helps us with a lot of communications. But yeah.
0: Yeah. Social media definitely helps a lot. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk more about your, your training and your career. So, what all ratings did you get in South Africa? Did you just get your private pilot or did you get them all? Uh,
1: uh, South Africa is an ICAO um, uh, system. So, I got an ICAO PPL. Uh, in the US, I got my FA, a commercial multi instrument uh, land and single engine C and helicopter private.
0: Did you ever think in your, oh my gosh, you'd be a helicopter too? <laughs> Jeez, you can literally, literally fly everything. That's crazy. Uh, curious did, about stuff.
1: Yeah, That's what I, it is. Yeah,
0: very curious. You're right.
1: That's how that happens. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not easy on the on the wallet though, right?
1: Mm,
0: no. <laughs> but worth it. Uh I was going to ask is, so you did your PPL and IKO and then you came over to the States and did the other stuff. What, what was the most difficult transition to getting your PPL transitioned over from IKO to the FA
1: was really piece of cake. Um, there's a there's uh, there's a few ways that you can do that for international students thinking of the US as a training destination. Um, I took the bull by the horns. I'm like I'm not going to do any of these shortcuts. I'm uh, so I'm permanently in the US. I uh, this is this is where I make a living and where I live. So I knew that I wanted to be um, fully qualified in under the FAA system. So I just essentially redid the private uh, syllabus including the written, and of course, I got credit for, at that time, I think I had now a few hundred hours already. So I had all the flight time minus uh, the night and minus some very specific FAA cross-country requirements and and the night. and, and The night in ICAO, uh, at least in South Africa, is not part of the PPL. It's an additional rating. It's a check ride and it's a rating and it includes, uh, it's the same theme as in uh, under FAA, but it's not part of your PPL. You are not allowed to fly after something you know, in dark. Um, so obtaining the night rating actually here is is a little bit more intense than uh, under FAA. Involves a an instrument basic instrument course, not just upset recovery and the stuff that we do in the in the FAA world, um, and basic instrument flying, um, and then of course night training, uh, and I think fifteen or twenty hours of night training. So, you won't get to fly at night uh, unless you've completed PPL plus about twenty or twenty five more hours, I believe. So, but back to getting the FAA certificates, really easy. I just went through. The, all the written got that knocked out because air, aerodynamics and principles of flight, all of that's the same, you know. It's just, yeah, it's different uh, airspace, of course, under FAA. That's a slight difference, but it's not a challenge, really. Um, aerody- Airwork, aerodynamics, systems, all of that's the same. And then I just knocked out the check rights, uh, PPL. So then at least I was a fully qualified uh, FAA, PPL, fixed wing and on top of that, then I built like anybody else would do in the, in the U.S. So I essentially just started from scratch.
0: Yeah. Where did you go to do the training?
1: Um, so I lived in California at the time in um, Irvine, just south of L.A. So my nearest flight school was, um, there's a bunch of flight schools out there. There's a huge population, obviously a lot of vacation. Um, so for my helicopter, I flew out of John Wayne. Um, which was pretty cool because it's both a busy airport commercially as well as cool setting and uh, you know two runways and a helicopter flight school was on a rooftop so it had all the oh, elements wow. of excitement. Yeah, <laughs> that you that's could ever so cool want for trying to get into and in fact in the US I qualified myself as a FAA rotor PPL first before I later on said you know what I. I'm going to be flying seaplanes, so I just may as well do fixed wing. So I did helicopter first and then fixed wing. Fixed wing I did at Long Beach Flying Club, which is just up the road.
0: Nice. That's cool. I was just at Long Beach last week. I was there for like two days, oh, yeah. so it was great. Yeah. i always loved yeah. going to Long Beach.
1: It's cool airport. Yeah, yeah, it is a cool airport. Nice it's kind of like stuck in optics. history too. Yeah, it is. And it's a nice complex runway complex to train, you know, for the purpose of flight training. And, and, and it's uh, right there. And it's right there. If you want to dip your toes in the Bravo, LA Bravo, then you can do that. You know, it's so, so it's pretty cool, pretty busy place.
0: I think I know the answer to this question, but so you have your seaplane, you have a normal fixed wing, and then you also have your helicopter. What is your favorite type of flying, if you have one?
1: Off airport flying.
0: Off airport flying. Okay, <laughs> so none of what I oh so that could go to to helicopters so, and fixed wing and seaplanes. Yeah, sea so
1: that's going so. <laughs> to lead to helicopter yeah. and seaplane yeah. operations. That's and awesome. I think that's why I I kind of um, so, zoomed in, you know narrowed down to the fixed wing flying. It be, became pretty evident to me. Uh, Well, helicopters, you fly a helicopter because you want to go to some off airport location. And uh, I would probably never, I got qualified, but I would probably never, you know, make a turn that into a career. It's just cost prohibitive. And once you start commercial flying, professional pilot flying, um, the barrier to entry for commercial helicopter operations is just a lot of time and money commitment post your PPL. Um, but I might be. I might at some stage go. You know what? I I'll just convert. You can do add-on. You know, with you can do rotor to fix, fix to rotor. So I might go do a rotor add-on, commercial add-on. But then again, the the industry is very very limited uh, uh, helicopter commercial industry, and you are really um, it's just the barrier to entry as a professional heli- helicopter pilot is way high. So um, I would say off airport because I do like. You know, putting a helicopter down just, you know, in a bunch of trees, not in the trees, but, you know, in a, amongst the little clearing under the trees and have a picnic, that kind of thing is really fun. And then, of course, seaplanes, because the, you fly a seaplane to go to that lake, to that beach, to the island.
0: Yeah. So, I probably should ask this question. To- I should have asked this beforehand, but I guess I'm confused a little bit at like, what is your full time job? Like, is flying kind of uh, just for fun? Do you still work in the business world or are you now in fully into the aviation world and just like only a pilot?
1: Uh, the latter is true. Okay. And, and the interesting context to that is uh, I made a career in technology, call it that. And um, um, so I got, I was very privileged to, to build a, build a really good career and and go play with technology, you know, that people would drool over. And so I was involved at things like Amazon cloud services and uh, big scale, really, really massive scale, Sony online game streaming, uh, you know, just cloud, what, what we today refer to as cloud computing stuff. So I was architecting a lot of that stuff. But I got to a place in time where I realized that time is really all we have it's not even about money. It's it's the two parameters that we have, and not to go off on a tangent here, but the two things that really are the only things that we have almost no control over, and that that is, is finite to all of us is time and health. And um, I think I just realized that I have this such a great passion for aviation, and I'm not you know uh, exercising that. I could never get enough, so I literally retired from my. Tech career and I became fully qualified as a professional pilot. And so now for the past few years, I am a professional pilot. That's my main source of income. It's my only source of income and I fly seaplanes. And the reason I do that is for the stated reasons. Yeah.
0: What, how long ago did you make that decision?
1: About four years ago. Um, and I think the trigger to that was um, as I started building time and experience and tinkering with little fixed wing here and a helicopter, you know, seaplane, I, I had the opportunity to participate in a long um, in a cross-country, actually a cross-continent ferry flight. Uh, and where I flew with the new owner, also happens to be CFI, also happens to now be a very, very good friend um, and it just you know right place right time and and I was able to participate in a ferry flight out of anchorage to florida took a seaplane and did the entire con- cross country the entire continent flew the coastline of alaska and through bc and canada and the rockies and and i think and i took 2 weeks i literally put in leave from my work and i took 2 weeks and i go did that and i came back totally changed i'm like convinced this is I, I i gotta do this every day of my life and so i made the decision you know i put the steps in place and executed like the people will tell you to do and i just finally made the switch and just said goodbye to the other career and i did a career change do you
0: miss a, do you miss your old career at all ever are you fully happy you made the change
1: Fully happy. Um, yes, there are parts of it that you miss and it's always the people element and, and likewise with flying, it's the people, it's not the things or the, the, uh, the, uh, technology or the material stuff that we surround ourselves with. It's always the people. So yeah, I worked with great people throughout my life so far in the career. And, and of course I'll miss that interacting, you know, with them, uh, in that industry, but I will tell you that the, the industry, the aviation industry, to me, is just orders magnitude, more uh, engaging, more encouraging, just a way closer community of professionals. It doesn't matter what they do. You know, there's so much flying going on. But the aviation uh, people is where I find most common interest, common uh, energy positive energy and i would never look back
0: no yeah i'd agree i I mean i'd agree with i don't know about the tech community but i agree about the aviation community it's just wild just how diverse the community is i mean you have like billionaires flying on private jets. You have people that just are light sport pilots. You have people from all different walks, colors, races, everything as a pilot. And we always have that one thing in common where we're pilots and you can get us all in one room and we, we could just talk for hours and hours and hours about aviation. And I, I'm sure that's in some other industries too, but it, it'd be hard to rival the aviation community with any other kind, type of community.
1: It's absolutely true, and you know, I thought about that many, many times when I when I come back to that same question. And I think there are certain professions where you do find that, and and if you if you um, interview. S- I think the medical profession has a very strong bonds, common interest in really doing good and, and, and helping mankind. And I think the sub part of uh, medical practitioners, uh, the people that become very specialized and surgeons and all of that, that really do uh, very, very advanced work. I think they're totally dedicated and to total workaholics because because of their passion. Now, aviation, as we know, there's just, we're all nuts about flying stuff and It's hard to explain. There's a certain level of romance and this, that, and the other thing and tech challenge. But there is just this common thread and I think it goes across all sectors of aviation and that's so unique.
0: I love it. Yeah, I love it too. It's something that keeps drawing me in. It's something I wasn't really expecting when I started this podcast or say I started the, the, the Instagram account. I wasn't really expecting to kind of fall in love with the aviation community like I had. And it just, it caught me by surprise. And I, I mean, I'm all in, man. Like I'm all about it. It's like, it's so much fun and it's so cool to, to help people or to be helped. And one thing about aviation, I always try to talk and I always try to preach and I always try to do myself is that so many people have helped me in my career that, Now where I am, it's my duty to go back and help the newer generation. It's my duty to go back and help younger private pilots and take the time to answer those questions that I wanted asked when I was a pilot and not forget that I was in their shoes not too long ago.
1: Yeah, and you had wished there was somebody that you could just raise your hand and say, hey, I have this question. I hope it's not a silly question, but can you help me answer that? Or how was this for you? And I think we all have a a responsibility to do that, to give back to the the community. I agree. And
0: it's how the community has always been. So yeah, we can't change it now. We got to keep going. Nope. No, yeah. we won't. No. Well, I got a couple more questions for you before. Mm. I know your time is precious, so I don't want to take no, up too much fine. of it we like we talked going. about. Yeah. There's so much fun. What about, so you are now, you're walking away from your career. You just had that seaplane flight. Um, right. Was it only on your mind, I'm going to be a seaplane pilot, or was there some kind of doubt or maybe some other some other routes you could see yourself going? Maybe an airline pilot, maybe a freight pilot, maybe a helicopter pilot, like, or was it only seaplane and you just wanted to dive right into seaplanes?
1: Yeah, pretty much and you know it's not so much about the about the equipment and the technology but, but it was more about the lifestyle so I remember I, I um, sit in a cubicle and I manage people and I see nothing but the outside from the outside world and I, I just had this strong desire to be outside to be above soaring above and to be out in nature out in wilderness and you um, my introduction to seaplanes was, you know, like probably for, for most people is I visited Alaska and that was that. Um, uh, I pretty much realized – before that, I had, uh, had seen books and read books and watched videos and stuff. And it was always this far off perhaps thing. But once I visited Alaska, I'm like, that's it. This is where I'll end up. I will fly here. I got to do this. Not just because of the seaplane flying, but that in, the lifestyle, the Alaskan lifestyle is – one hundred thousand percent adventure um, extremes of everything from nature to to the challenge of making a living from um, the complexity of the location. I mean, there's everything there is nothing is a given. And so it's a challenge of a di- whole different level. And so you insert aviation into that world and it just makes for a very, very interesting, very high learning, very high um Risk-reward environment, I guess you could put it that way. And, and so there's the seaplane thing. Obviously, it's, it has that. It's the lifestyle. It's the challenge. It's the exhilaration of being out in nature and in a place like Alaska. There's, a, there's some seaplane flying all over the world. And, and, you know, I've flown in the Caribbean and the tropical waters. That's easy flying. You you there's not i don't I haven't seen anything in my exposure at least that compares to the Alaska flying. There's one other place that is technically very challenging, um, uh, and it's the New York city area, the the East River operations, and it's te- it's technically very, very challenging from a seaplane flying perspective. and I guess you know um, seaplane pilots around the world will echo that same sentiment. there's there's a, just so much going on there that makes it a very, very risky operation. Uh, challenging call it that testing challenging yeah. big learning curve
0: and those challenges um, are all different too like you said like Alaska is different challenging for maybe weather for terrain <laughs> and then you got New York and the East River and that's more volume of traffic and air traffic control oh, yeah. and so it's, it's very different challenges
1: but it's but all of those what all those environments have in common it's very dynamic um, uh, and extreme parameters that interact and creates a very dynamic environment for the pilot. So you got to have your head on straight. You got to have your head on a swivel. Your decision making has to be nonstop. Blah blah blah. So seaplanes, yes, because it has all of those really fascinating, I think, uh, challenges. And then um, cargo uh, is my other favorite kind of. Uh, I think, avenue of, of aviation that I'd like to explore here uh, in the near future. And not just, you know, shuffling things from here to there, but international, because I think um, that will help so- satisfy, of, of course, there's there's a, there's a purpose in what you're doing, right? And, and a lot of the purpose might be commercial for this or that, but there's also the ability to participate in real, Um, meaningful uh, assignments. And if you think of the category of relief work and disaster recovery and people have to move stuff all the time and they need aviation to move things. And so there's a really interesting, uh, to me at least, uh, purpose in um, being able to operate across borders with sophisticated equipment and get the job done and get Help to people that need help, you know, uh, almost overnight if you think about it like that. And so, in that regard, I think the international cargo has is, is got my interest peak. So eventually,
0: uh, maybe so. fly some big metal across uh, yep. the oceans. Yeah, yep, yeah. yep. That's always Perhaps. fun. That's a, that's a good route to go by. And I have a couple of friends that are flying <laughs> seven sixes, seven fives, 7.7s, mm. seven, seven fours, and it's like, mm. man, that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of interesting things going on there. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> yeah.
0: this goes back to just talk about the just how big aviation is. Like there's so many jobs that you can have in aviation and there's so many ways to satisfy a successful aviation career and there's almost to take it even further, there's no definition of a successful aviation career because there's just there's so many different things you can do and there's so many things that are just so personalized and you don't have to be an airline pilot. You can go be a corporate pilot, you can go fly you can go fly in the bush of Alaska you can go fly in the islands you can go fly cargo you can be a CFI there's just so many things that you can do and you can have such a great career in aviation it's it's second it, to none it is it's
1: magic right think about it we all hear you know throughout our learning periods we learn we hear and we get told by our mentors that you can do pretty much anything just put your mind go go figure out what it is that you want to do but aviation is the in, one of the industries where you can absolutely define exactly what you want to do in terms of a lifestyle and you can satisfy that within aviation. It's one of the few industries, in my opinion, that, that allows you to be all that uh, lateral diversity in, in decision making that will eventually end you up in a lifestyle and a life that you choose and design for yourself. It's absolutely, the, the you can just go fi- figure out your plan, whatever it is, put the building blocks together and you can do that. There's no box that, that you need to stay inside of.
0: Absolutely. And like I said, it's second to none and it's just so cool. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question because I get a lot of people asking me about career change. And how old were you when you decided to make the career change?
1: That's a good question. And um, I'll, I'll give you the answer. Well, the, um, I was at the end of my tech career and I was 52 years old. I will tell you that I'm the first person that will echo this sentiment of it is never too late. To go do that thing that you have passion and energy for and with hindsight if the question is would i have done anything differently yeah absolutely i would have made this decision 20 years ago um, but but in a small way i am a, an example that it is truly possible i guess um, you could do anything that you put your mind to as long as you have time and health you're fairly healthy the aviation is out there for you so for somebody that's out and have age on their t- on their side and is in their twenties and trying to figure out this, that, or the other thing, you know, go do, go try. If you're not sure what your thing is, even I would say, go try what you think it is. If you don't like it, switch after a year. You know, there's the other term that we used in um, that you'll hear um, entrepreneurs use often, and innovators and people that operate in that space and have to think in a very innovative, you think and execute innovation, fail fast is kind of their, their tagline. And so you have to do that with your career as well. And with your career planning, if you're 20 something or 30 or 40 or 50, whatever you, you think you're going to love this thing, go try it. Because if you never tried it, you would never know, blah, blah, blah. We know how that works. So it's never too late. The short answer, um, uh, because health is the only thing that's on your side while you still have it and don't waste it away. That's all I can say. Yeah.
0: I mean, you yeah. said it better than I could ever say it, so anyone listening that 's thinking about a career change thirty forty fifty go for it if this is something you want to do, if you think this will make you happy, you have the means to do it, and you have a family that will support you, then go for it hundred percent
1: absolutely you know there's a we we all through our lives we we hopefully learn and and try and learn from others, and so we consume literature and books and this and that, and you 'll hear a lot of people talk about um Uh, What is well, what is, you know, happiness, what is true happiness? And you'll get some, you know, motivational speakers. They all say the same thing and it's absolutely true. Go do that thing that makes you most happy. Because if you do that, you will be successful. And then by magic, you will be, you know, you're happy. Therefore, you have a smile on your face. You will be successful. And the things that matter most to you will fall in place, like whether it's, you know, family or career or studies. You're just a better person and better equipped to be successful in whatever you define as success and let the success be that thing that you can write on the back of the envelope but if you're doing th- something that keeps you busy every day and that you're happy about doing then you will achieve that thing regardless of what it is that's just that is the magic recipe and I wish everybody does that. Um, keep that in the back of their minds when they go through career counseling and education and is there any other thing and uh, i think that's universally true
0: yeah no i mean once again you you said it better than i could ever say it man that was that was well said it's spot on find something you love put all your passion in it and it's going to pay off i mean life's not about having a range rover or Mm -mm. a million dollar two million dollar house it's about finding something you love to do and you're passionate about and what makes you happy and usually if you find something that makes you happy, your your happiness and success and wealth will come from that. Now it might be different definitions of wealth, but right. it's going to be what makes you happiest, what makes you live the best possible life you can live.
1: That's absolutely true. Because I think if you're keeping yourself busy with a, with an activity that keeps you happy, by implication, you're going to be healthy. You're going to be in a healthy physical and a mental state of mind. And that that is the package that can take you to success. So I think that's key. I mean, so many people are in careers and places where they wish they could be doing this other thing. Well, stop wishing it. Put your plan together, figure it out, and do it. You yeah. know? <laughs> Never too late. <laughs> Never <Yeah>. too
0: late. <laughs> like you said, view stop of your health. Ex- go for it.
1: Stop making excuses. Go look at yourself <laughs> in the mirror. Go <laughs> go do all those tests. You know, you can read books, and the internet is a great resource. Yeah. You know, figure it Absolutely. out and just go do something.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I love it, man. You're, you're hyping me up. You're making me uh, want to go do something right now.
1: <laughs>
0: that's awesome. What, uh, so I want to go ahead and uh, get into a section called the rapid fire section where I'm just going to ask you a bunch of aviation questions and you say the first and quickest answer that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. What is your favorite airplane that you have ever flown? The caravan on floats. Uh, that's a good answer. What is um, so this is a two part question what is just your favorite airplane in general and I and it's either going to be a corporate plane or an airliner so one are, you have to pick one of each uh,
1: one of each uh GA favorite well, so uh, airliner, I'd say the 380. Okay. Uh, and what was the other part again? Uh, corporate or GA.
0: So it can be uh, like a Falcon, it can be a, a Gulfstream, or it can be even like a Piper Aero. Yeah,
1: I wish I wish somebody would put me in a ride in some of those fancy jets. You know, I <laughs> clearly have to work on my, at my network. But um, I would say it's got to be a, a bush plane because of just all the dynamics that goes on there. You know, you're operating. And so uh, Beaver, Beaver on
0: floats. Ooh, Beaver, yeah. Beaver's always been one plane that I've always wanted to fly.
1: Beaver on straight floats. Yeah. There, there is that.
0: Now I have a feeling you will have a good answer for this because I think you've seen a lot in the aviation world. You're very diverse. You're kind of hanging around like a different crowd. You're not just kind of going to be in the corporate world or the airline world. What is the ugliest airplane you've ever seen?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's probably a few of them. The one that I've seen a lot is the the short uh, short Skyvan, the sc 7 yeah. Skyvan. <laughs> It just seems. <laughs> it just doesn't seem like it should fly, inter- right? Like it's just no, like it seems proportionally just wrong. But, yeah. You know. It's, yeah, it's not a, uh, aesthetic. That <laughs> is a very <laughs> ugly
0: airplane. So I will agree <laughs> with you on that.
1: <laughs> the
0: first time I saw one, I was like, "What is going on? Who would ever make <laughs> that or fly that? You couldn't pay me enough money to go fly that thing."
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a you all box with wings or a U- <laughs> exactly. You know, a with wings and
0: i've never seen one that's in good shape i've only seen the ones with <laughs> no. bad paint or leaking oil or doesn't have one oh. prop on the plane
1: <laughs> oh they're leaking like crazy yeah, yeah. it's always part of the, they go park them on the ramp on the other side of the ramp you know? yeah i know <laughs> right what? get away from me yeah <laughs> all
0: right here's one what is something you wish you knew before you became a pilot
1: i wish i knew it would be this much fun i would have done it way sooner
0: perfect answer i like it Who in the industry is someone you would like to meet most?
1: Yeah, prior to this year, I would have said Sir Richard Branson. I was very fortunate enough to meet him. Oh, no way. And spend a little little time. To me, he's one of those iconic aviation uh, personalities and and just so much good going on there. I would say Elon Musk. Now that I've met Sir Richard Branson, I would say Elon Musk just because of his his, uh, keen interest in the space exploration.
0: I would agree, Elon would be a fantastic person to just have like five minutes of his time just to be around him and hear him talk and just the way he thinks about things and how he innovates, you know? Right. And I think you guys probably have that same curiosity in in common too, that you guys would hit it off.
1: Hopefully so, set set us up. That would be fantastic, Jeez.
0: Yeah, I know, right? I'll go reach out to him and make it happen. (laughs) Yeah,
1: make a few phone calls. (laughs) Yeah, I got you. What is your
0: favorite, what is one, like just one singular, what's your favorite thing about aviation? the people. Okay. Good answer. I like that. What's the hardest approach you've ever flown?
1: Here's one. Um, so in the, um, in the New York airspace, uh, flying floats off of the East river, there's a whole lot of complexity going on an IFR day, making a, a Making an approach uh, to minimums on an R-NAV. So getting off the water VFR. So I'll give you context. Off the water VFR, immediately into the clouds, into the IFR system, going MIST on an R-NAV, setting up for an ILS that's literally less, less than five minutes further along. So it felt like IFR, you know, your IFR check, right? Like reconfigure, go MIST, vectors to the ILS, reconfigure the avionics, get it set up, and go execute the ILS to minimums. This is in a caravan. And so pretty tight, Must and then ILS to minimums. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty challenging. That sounds like a lot mm. happening at once. Interesting, just very, very busy, interesting, yeah. fun.
0: Yeah, and like, you, yeah. like we talked about, just a very different type of flying than you get in Alaska.
1: Alaska is just very, very challenging. Yeah. Um, to me, the... Um, the bar is way high. Um, uh, VFR flying, let's preface that. VFR flying in Alaska, the bar is very high because there is no easy button getting into the clouds. So the combination of terrain and weather is what causes it to be very dynamic. And um, in addition to that, you're off the grid. So as soon as you're out of you know home base, you're essentially in a survival, plan B is your survival plan. And so as a single pilot in Alaska, uh, going to the back country, which all the flying pretty much is, you're always concerned about the decision that you're making not to maintain safe VFR conditions because you're doing that in any case. But the what if, you know, we need to spend a, a night, two nights, three nights. How am I, where am I going if I have a decision to make? such that I can keep the people safe with me and we can survive until help comes. Um, That's part of the everyday flying in Alaska. So that makes it very, very interesting.
0: Yeah. And that's probably one of those things that is just, you learn (laughs) that from experience, you know, it's like, you're not going to have those skills right away. So it's probably important to sound, to surround yourself with very experienced Alaskan flyers and kind of get a lay of the land and how things work and when to go and when not to go.
1: I will tell. I will absolutely uh, echo that sentiment, and uh, I'll say it this way: If if you're ever thinking of flying in Alaska or setting yourself up, listen, pay attention, and just be quiet and listen, and go sort of find those people that have survived Alaska. And one of my very dear mentors, um, he's lying to me as always, Dion. I'm going to be telling you this. I'm going to be showing you this. And the reason is not to make you a better pilot this or that or happier. The reason why you need to know this thing is so that you will survive. Um, and and it's pretty um, uh, sobering to to think of aviation in an environment where that's your primary focus, of course, it's safety and you know, all of the other things. You do all of those things so that you can do it again tomorrow, and that's the primary focus. It's a t- total different world than, um, than flying anywhere else in the world. Yeah, uh, you're 100% right. But listen, listen and learn, and never stop asking questions and just be quiet. Listen mm-hmm. listen to what the, the people that have done it for 20 and 30 years. Listen to the things they say.
0: Yeah. You'd rather ask a dumb question or what would be, might be perceived as a dumb question than be in a situation where you wish you would have asked that question. And now you're in a life threatening situation, you know? Yeah. 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 All right. On a lighter note, here is another question. What is, I guess I could ask this this way. What is your favorite place to land? So it could be an airport or it could be off airport since that's something that fascinates you and something that you're passionate about.
1: Yeah, so I think we all know now by the by this conversation. I've already hinted that it's off airport. Uh, I tell you the 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 most fascinating, the most funnest places that I've landed are the glacial lakes in Alaska. Now, there's not too many of them, but there's one that's that's very easy access, easily accessible, just like twenty minutes out of Anchorage, and it's a glacial lake that's filled with. Um, Obviously, the glacial water, but also the, the glacier carving off into the lake. So, if you go look at my social media, you'll find some photos of that environment. And it's just fascinating to put the plane down on a piece of, on a body of water, shut it down, a ta- taxi up to, you know, to an iceberg or icebergs and shut it down and just be surrounded by that environment. It's totally surreal. There is, there are very few places in the world that you can do that. So you could say it's very unique, um, legally do that. I, I guess you can look at the geography. There's places in Patagonia, which I think will resemble that. There are, uh, you cannot do that anywhere in Scandinavia. You might be able to, find, you will find that in Greenland, uh, but but it's not for the average Joe to go do that. So yeah, it's fascinating to do that. It's from a from a seaplane flying perspective, it's kind of challenging. Because the interesting thing with the floating icebergs with no vegetation around is there's no way to, to judge the height and the size of the, of the icebergs. So if you're approaching to land over a glassy water scenario where there is no wind and you cannot judge the depth of your depth perception as you're setting up to land, you're kind of potentially tricked into thinking the, the relative size of the icebergs will give you some relative elevation perspective but it's the most one of the most deceiving situations so it's only once you're on the water that you then taxi up to an iceberg and you go holy you know i thought this thing was the size of a car now i see it as tall as a four story building and it is just ridiculous the scale of the alaskan landscape and then the glaciers and the glacial lakes are just fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I would. It's yeah, I mean, wild.
0: I don't have the experience you <laughs> do, so I can't necessarily agree. Agree, but I do agree in the fact that that would be pretty crazy and pretty
1: wild. It's totally wild, and you know, we take tourists, um, and and the best, the the most rewarding of doing all of that is just the, the the expressions and the the fascination that you see them express when they get to an environment like that is like. Oh my word! You know we didn't even think this existed. Like, let alone we can go. What do you mean we can go down there and go land there? Okay, let's go. You know, yeah, all right,
0: let's do it. Crazy. Let's do it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's,
1: awesome. it's crazy. Yeah. All right,
0: here's some more. Here's some quicker ones for you. These are these are pretty simple. What is uh, Airbus or Boeing for a favorite uh, manufacturer? Boeing. What is your favorite airline livery?
1: Ooh, Cathay. Uh, mm.
0: It's a tough one. Uh, no, Air, Air New Zealand. Ooh, That's pretty I like stunning. that one. Yeah, I'm a big Air New Zealand fan. Yeah. Uh, Piper or Cessna for training aircraft?
1: Cessna.
0: 141 Come training?
1: Come on, high wing. Come high on. wing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All, you're high right. Wing.
0: I should have known, right? <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> 141 training versus 61 training?
1: I'd say 61.
0: Yeah, I think it really depends on who you are, but for me, 61 worked out the best. Yeah. What is your favorite airline to fly on? Air France, the 380. Ah, that's going to be tough to fly on those in the future. Yeah, I know. For now. Let's yeah. say it for now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's another one. Uh, flyover. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, the city, or kind of like the flyover states? Beaches. Okay, and got a couple more. What is the biggest win of your career, your aviation career?
1: I would say... Committing to executing my plan, just sticking to my plan. And you know my plan now was to become a qualified commercial seaplane pilot. So that whole process of actually executing uh, and making it happen, yeah. What about your biggest regret? Not having done it sooner. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's almost what everyone says. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Isn't that so, strange? Yeah.
0: No. <laughs> dude, sooner. it's like, so dude, you just started training that... when you're 16. What could you have done sooner?
1: <laughs> yeah. I look, uh, I look and I, you know, I, I, um, connect with a lot of these young people, young at age people, and they're just now getting into aviation. I'm like, man, you are so fortunate. You, you don't know how fortunate you are to at this age be involved with aviation. doesn't matter what you're doing, but, there are, there's so much ahead that you're doing the right thing. Yeah, I 100% agree. Well, Dion, those are all the rapid
0: fire questions I have for you. Uh, I'll end it with one more question and do a quick little wrap up real quick, but thank you so much for coming on. I've followed you for a while. I mean, I've seen you kind of go just post these great pictures and then do all your, your seaplane stuff down in South Florida and then go up to Alaska. So I feel like I've kind of like tagged along your career for the last like two years. So thanks for including me with that But uh, I really appreciate your conversation today. Like, I think it's going to be just a great, um, it's just going to be great for listeners to hear what you have to say. You're so smart about what you say, and you just have this passion for aviation that just kind of exudes from what you're talking about. And I think it's really going to get a younger generation or people to listen to this, maybe to fall back in love with aviation and realize how cool it actually is. So I'm going to have you
1: ask you one more question, and then I'll let you go. But uh, thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. No, thank you very, very much for making the time and you know figuring it out in your schedule and the the public, uh, the, the your schedule with the podcast and all of that. And hopefully, you mentioned the the posting of my stuff and the social media. And you know, there's one reason why I do that. Of course, I I do enjoy carrying a camera and capturing it, uh, the 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 scenery from above, the the view, the perspective from above is just magic. But I'm I'm also putting a lot of time and effort into that, as you might have noticed. And 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 my hope is that somebody on the receiving side, even if it's one person gets inspired and motivated to take up aviation and to actually execute and follow through on their plan, then I've won. That's first prize. And, uh, so I hope that people are encouraged by looking at some of the visual uh, content that I put out there uh, because that's essentially, that's the goal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I love it. It's a, it's a great way to look at Instagram and see it for that reason, rather than I want followers. I want to make money. You know, so that's no, uh, it's just really refreshing share your
1: your passion because yeah. that's how we learn, and hopefully, somebody else out out there uh, is looking at it and aspiring in some way or another to their own personal uh, dream.
0: Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. And hmm. uh, last question for you: It is yep. going to be they say we have this conversation. I post this podcast in a month time. Someone emails you, and they get this really long email. I'm forty five years old. I've always wanted to be a seaplane pilot. I'm living wherever but they want to make that switch and they finally talked their wife into it they finally talked everyone into it what are kind of three tips or what would you what advice would you give them to make the switch
1: so the three things I would say um, first is ask yourself the question get an answer to the question like of what it is what is it that you're really trying to achieve so have that written down have that figured out and then say it in other words, is clearly, very, very clearly define your goal. And it's what by when. It has two elements. It's what am I going to do by when am I going to do it? The timeline is very, very key. I cannot stress that enough. The second thing is you're going to obviously figure out a plan. So come up with a very, very solid plan. Um and that could be the whole, you know, including the whole environment and collaborating with your, your network and your loved ones and your lifestyle because life happens out there. It's not as if people are just shutting down everything else. So figure the execution plan and then execute it, and execute and stick to your plan. And the way you're going to do that is make sure that you've checked all the boxes of what it what is required for me to execute this plan. And if there is a time and money commitment make sure that you've done a very conservative estimate of what it will take. Because, you know, as all our plans go, it'll never go according to plan. So with aviation, we know it's um, when when the learning goes slower, uh, it tends to be drawn out, it tends to be less efficient, and it tends to end up being more expensive. So the two pieces, the piece of executing that plan that's very, very key is f- – Figure out your timeline and figure out the money element because you don't want to get stuck midway through the training out of funds. You essentially have to have all the funds up front ready to go so that that will never be your, your slowdown or the hurdle whilst you're going through this change and this learning and all of that. I think those are the big hurdles that you need to remove even before you begin.
0: I love it, man. And like I said earlier, well said. I think that that's going to help a lot of people because I get a lot of emails about career changes and I don't really know what to tell them because I wasn't a career changer. This is kind of what I wanted to do. So it's great having you on to talk about career change and how you just wish you would have done it earlier and how you should just go do it. And those tips will definitely help them in that decision making. So Dion, thanks for coming on. I appreciate your time and I look forward to this coming out. (laughs)
1: Oh, Justin, thanks so much, man. Like I said, it's uh, it's been a pleasure to spend some time with you here, even though we're almost, what, 10, 12 hours, 12 time yeah, zones away from literally each Literally halfway
0: around the world right now. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. In fact, I could not be further away from Alaska now. If you put a pin right through the center of Earth from Anchorage, you'll end up in uh, South Africa. That's There's some crazy. interesting geology about that. That is Um but thanks very much for having me. It's been a great pleasure and I hope your audience agrees as well and find some meaning in, in our conversation and uh, let me know any feedback, any questions. So welcome to... Yeah, uh,
0: absolutely. And we'll have to meet up at Oshkosh this year if you're going.
1: I'll be there. I'll be at Sun and Fun as well. So right. yeah, we'll definitely... We'll, up we'll find there. time to meet up. All right, All Dion, right, thank you so thank
0: much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it.
1: And thank you very much there. It's good evening and good morning for you or well, good afternoon <laughs> yeah, for you.
0: absolutely. <laughs> And that is a wrap of episode 98 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoy it, reach out to me on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. Email me, pilot the pilot HQ at gmo.com. And special shout out to our patron of the week, John Schofield. Aviation, as always, happy flying.